Good morning, Stonebridge. Thank you all for joining us today. I'm very excited to be starting a new series in the book of Genesis. I'm excited to start a series as there are incredible events in this book that are foundational to the rest of the Bible. Funny thing, though, when, when I'm interacting with new believers or even people that come to me and just say, hey, I would like to read the Bible, where should I start? I always tell them, never start in the book of Genesis. Now, that's funny because we as humans, it's, it's almost instinctive, right, that when you pick up a book, you open it up to page one and you start reading. But I truly believe that is not how the Bible should be read. When people ask where they should start, I tell them that they need to start in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And depending on who it is I'm talking to, I'll even direct them to a specific Gospel. See, those books give us the clearest picture of who Jesus is and what he did for us. I don't want people to start reading the Bible in Genesis because there are potentially difficult passages and events that we're going to encounter in this book that without a foundation in the gospel, without a love for Jesus, without an understanding of who he is and what he has done for us, they can be hard to stomach. Some difficult passages coming ahead for us. But it is an important book. As we start a series, we need to always ask the question, you know, what's going on and, and kind of lay that groundwork for the book. And so starting off right away, what is the book of Genesis? Well, Genesis is a book about beginnings. It tells us of such things as the beginning of creation, the beginning of languages, the, uh, the beginning of a chosen nation. In fact, the title itself means in the beginning. And if you look, it's obviously the first words in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God. It gives us an account of the generations before and after the flood. <clears throat> it gives us specific details about genealogies and, and lines of families and, and just how mankind came to be. In fact, the phrase, these are the generations, happens at key points throughout the Bible and it, or throughout the book, and it acts as almost like a hinge from one major section to the next as we go through the book of Genesis. You'll see it over and over again. These are the generations of, and it'll hinge into our next section. The book can be divided into two major sections. One is God's dealing with humanity as a whole. And we find that in chapters 1 through 11, beginning of chapter 11. And then the second section is God's dealing with the specific chosen race, the, the descendants of Abraham. We see that in the second half of chapter 11 to the end of chapter 50. Genesis is obviously located in the beginning of the Bible, in the, the very beginning, the first chapter in our Bible. And as is with every book of the Bible, we break each section up into different parts to describe the, the type of writings that are contained in those books. We've talked about that before, right? We just got done with Daniel. That's in a section called the prophets. We've looked at the different epistles. We've looked at different other books like the Gospels and just sections like that. We have these titles for the different sections to help us understand what types of writings they are. This, Genesis, is located in a section of the Bible referred to as the Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses, written by Moses, inspired by God, given to Moses by God as he was up on the mountain 
writing the Ten Commandments and, and doing the wilderness wanderings with the people, writing what was going on as it happened. The word Pentateuch actually means five books or five scrolls. Those five books focus on the history and the life of the Israelites or otherwise known as the Jews. So we have to ask, why? Why are we going through it? If I'm sitting here saying I don't tell people to start in the book of Genesis, why are we going through it? Well, first off, we've been a church for almost three years now, so we're not starting in the book of Genesis, number one. And it's also very important. It is a very important book. It is foundational to our faith. As you can see from our sermon graphic, we are, we are titling this series, The Gospel According to Genesis. Now, when a lot of people hear the word gospel, they think of the first four books of the New Testament. And that is what we call those sections. But the word gospel means good news. The good news that we think of in the New Testament is that Jesus, the only Son of God, came to earth, lived a perfect life of healing, teaching, and helping the world understand God. And then he was unjustly crucified and died a criminal's death. And three days later, he rose again. And he did all of that so that we could be forgiven of our sins. That is good news. But that's not the only good news in the Bible. The good news of God's plan starts all the way on page one. Today, we're going to cover those first two chapters of Genesis. So if you haven't opened your Bibles yet, head on to that first page, that first chapter of Genesis. And those first two chapters show us the creation account, the creation of everything. It starts off in that first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is good news right there. God created all of this. Now for time's sake, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those days of creation. We're not even going to read verses 2 through 25. Essentially, they just give an outline of the time frame of how God created everything. And I know that there are many different views out there of how long God spent creating everything and different theories about how creation could have happened. Some men have spent their entire lives trying to prove or disprove the specific creation beliefs. But the reality is that our view of creation is not that important. It is as a minor aspect in the grand scheme of the Bible. Whether you are an old earth creationist or a young earth creationist, if you believe the world is 10,000 years old or 10 billion years old, it doesn't really matter in the grand theme of the Bible. Pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul's, while discussing this idea of creation and the different creation beliefs, had a quote that I thought was just so perfect. And he says, Where God only whispers, it is best not to shout. Now, what does that mean? Where God only whispers, it is best not to shout? What he means by that is that the creation story, the actual story of creation, is only two chapters in the whole Bible. Two chapters out of 66 books, hundreds of chapters, thousands of verses, over a thousand pages. We have two chapters on two pages talking about creation. We need to make sure that we are focusing on the major aspects of these chapters, not the minor details. What does matter 
is who created everything and why it was created. Those are our two main ideas today. Those are the two most important topics and ideas, the major things to take away from the creation story. Who created everything and why he created it. Verse 1 shows us the who. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created everything. God is the creator of every living thing, every land form, every breath, every, every aspect of this world, every, every heavenly being, everything out there. God is the creator of everything. That is good news to us, that we have a God who created all of this. The creation account is about the who, not the how. God's name is repeated 35 times in this section. He is the main point of creation. It is about him. Not how he did it, but him. He is the creator. And now, like I said, we're we're not going to dig down into those those verses of 2 through 25, but really what we see there is this 10,000-foot flyby of how God created. It's the day-by-day account of creation. And now, I spent a lot of time over, over my years researching and trying to understand the creation account and just trying to understand what my beliefs personally were. And I found this really helpful graphic recently that showed this 10,000-foot this view of the days of creation. And so we'll have that available here. You can look at that as I continue talking. This really helped me, and I believe it will help all of us as well, to understand what God is doing on these days. You see, we can see from this that on days one through three, well, one through three connect with days four through five. Days one through three is God's creative act of forming. Day one, he forms and separates light and darkness. Day two, he forms and separates water from the sky. Day three, he forms and separates land from sea and creates vegetation. Then we see his act of filling. Day four, he fills the light and the darkness with the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, he fills the water and the sky with sea creatures and birds. Day six, he fills the land with land creatures. It's this creative act of forming and filling. Through this whole process, we see this repeated term. I know we didn't read it, but it isn't hard to find it as you just glance through it. There's this repeated term over and over again. At the end of every day, it was good. Every day, as God finishes, he looks at his creation, he says, it is good. This is a very poetic account of creation. And we're going to focus our time today mostly on these last few verses of chapter 1 and even into verse 2, we're going to look at some of that. It's going to show us the why of creation. There'll be three real subpoints in there that help us to see the why of creation, but just important to see this beautiful, poetic Hebrew account of creation. And so as now as we dig into the why aspect, follow along as I read, starting at verse 26. Starts off and it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. It was, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And then drop down to verse seven of chapter two. It's just, I want to add that in here too. It says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So this first aspect that we see here, this first sub point under the why of creation, we can see God creating man. There's something different here. There's something more unique about this. You see, the privileged position of human beings is shown by the fact that our creation required a special decision. It's presented as if it was made at some great gathering. The plural in this of let us make man indicates the seriousness. Let us shows us this is an act of the Trinity coming together, a special gathering saying, let us us as the Godhead make man in our own image. This is something new and important. Something incredible is happening here. And there's something different about this creation than the rest. Did you see it? Did you see what was different after the sixth day, after man was created, than all the rest? Let me read it again. Verse 31 and God saw everything that, had, that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. We need to understand that. We need to understand that we have something called the Imago Dei inside of us. This is a, a, a Hebrew term that means that we carry the image of God inside us, the Imago Dei. We are image bearers. This reminds me of Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10, in referring to humanity, it says that we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship. The New Living Translation says that we are his masterpiece. Do you know what a masterpiece is? Do you understand that? When I think of masterpieces... I think of Legos. <clears throat> you know, my boys, my boys love Legos. And in the beginning, you know, when we just had like Duplos, Deacon would bring like four Duplo blocks snapped together and he'd be like, look, dad, I built a box. And I'm like, cool, buddy. Great job. And he got older and he got more creative. And we started buying these bigger sets and he starts building huge fortresses and spaceships and all these incredible things. But that wasn't good enough. Because he's so creative and he's so detailed that he starts then destroying the fortresses and destroying the spaceships and building his own creations. Right now, we've been packing up a lot of different stuff and Deacon's had a lot of his Legos packed up and put away. And he just has two little bags. 
And honestly, that's about a tenth of what the Legos that he usually has is. But the other day, he comes to me. And he goes, look at what I built, Dan. Look at what I built. He goes, it's a dragon. It's a, it's a robot dragon, I think. I, I think that's what he said. It's incredible. And he's like, look, Dad, it's got bendable arms and legs, and it's got a little spot and control center for the driver, and his head moves. This is incredible. He just, a pile of Lego sitting on the floor, and he just whips this up, right? I'm just baffled by that, that he has that ability to see that. What about some of you guys watching, right? What are creative things that y'all do? Some of you paint or draw. We just watch the worship team. Many of you sing or play instruments. Maybe, maybe you write. Maybe you do speaking. Whatever it is, those are creative acts. A masterpiece is the best thing that you have ever done. Definition of masterpiece is an artist or craftsman's best piece of work. That is what God calls us. We are his masterpiece of creation. That is why he waited till the end of creation to make humans. We are the greatest piece of his creation. We are his masterpiece. Some of you watching this morning are followers of Jesus. I know you are, but you struggle. You struggle with identity. You struggle with self-worth. You struggle with depression. You struggle with sexual sins. Yet God says that you are my masterpiece. He says you are worth so much more than all of this. You are worth more than your bank accounts or your jobs. You are worth more than your weight or your looks. You are worth more than your addictions or your sin struggles. You are worth so much more. You are God's masterpiece. Now, the idea of the Imago Dei is not just something for Christians. The image of God is in every single human being who has ever lived or will ever live. I know that we have said this before. Both Matt and I have said this in other sermons, but it is worth repeating here because this is exactly where we get the idea from, from the image of God. So I just want to say it again. Every human being male or female, black or white, gay or straight, young or old, Republican or Democrat, rich or poor, are image bearers of God and they deserve to be treated with the dignity and the respect as fellow image bearers. When we realize that the people that are in our lives that God has placed around us, our neighbors, our co-workers, people that we encounter in the community, when we realize that they are fellow image bearers, it gives us the ability to love them as God does. And as we should be loving God sacrificially, with empathy, trying to understand, trying to help them to see Jesus. That is how we need to be loving those that God has placed around us. It is so vitally important for us to see that we are image bearers and that everyone is an image bearer. Now, as we move into chapter two, we see this 
interlude and repeat, right? It's like this, this pause and then a repeat of the creation account. It's, you know, like a, it's like a Hillsong song, right? Like it's like this interlude, we pause and then we repeat the chorus 15 times until we all have it memorized, right? It's a good hill. I'm just kidding. But seriously, that's kind of what's, it's like you have to stop and question why with this. Why is there this pause and why does God repeat creation? Well, we have to understand again what's going on. So first, the, the, the pause, the interlude, we see that it pauses and says, and then God rested. Well, why does God rest? Was he tired? Was he exhausted from all of his work of creating, right? Like I've done a lot of work on my home over the past couple of weeks of moving rocks and painting and packing and doing all sorts of stuff. And I was exhausted after a lot of it. When I read this and I see everything that God did, I have to question like, wow, God must have been really tired after doing all of this. That must be why he rested. No. See, God doesn't use up any energy in the process of creation. He doesn't expel energy. He is all-powerful all the time. He creates by simply speaking into existence. So he doesn't rest because he's tired. He rests to give us a, a, an example. And we see that in the book of Exodus when we see the Ten Commandments. God tells Moses that we should work for six days and rest on the seventh. God rests as an example for all of us to say, hey, you can't work seven days a week nonstop every day. You have to have time of refreshing and and resting. That doesn't necessarily mean sleeping. It just means relaxing and refreshing and taking time to pause. And then we see the repeat of creation. And again, why? Why does God repeat? Well, I said that that first chapter really has the 10,000 foot view of the six days. And now as we move into chapter two, we start to see a little bit more detail of some specific areas of the creation account. And so we're going to read another section here. And we're going to see that as image bearers of God, there is an expectation that we carry as image bearers. So follow along as I read again, starting at verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now out of the ground, now jumping over to verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. So we see there's an expectation here. And we saw it actually in the last section I read too from, verse, from chapter 1. See, man is given dominion over everything. But what does that mean? What does it mean to have dominion? Does that mean, it, the word dominion means rule and authority. See, we've been given authority over all of creation as image bearers. But is that like a heavy-handed ruling kind of authority? We just got done with the book of Daniel and we saw some really ungodly rulers destroying and taking whatever they wanted. 
That's not the kind of ruling that we are to have as Christians, as image bearers. See, the kind of dominion that God is talking about here is the idea of cultivating. It is harnessing the earth's raw potential and making something new out of it. It's this creative act that we just shared, talked about. See, we, like I said, we're image bearers and we share the attributes of God. We have the ability to reflect his glory, to, to, to create, to have, show righteousness. We, are, we show those attributes to people. We also have the ability to multiply, right? We cultivate and multiply. We are to be fruitful and multiply, multiplying humans that grow into families, that grow into neighborhoods, that become towns, all to reflect his glory. And then we see this process of Adam naming. This again is the process of dominion. He's given the ability to name every creature. We are not to rule over nature like the rulers in Daniel. We are to work and show glory of God. See, work is not a result of sin. It says that. Work is in the garden. Work is something that should be joyful. But then as we move into our final section today, we're going to see that something is, something's not right. See, the only time in all of creation that God says that something is not good is coming up. Follow along as I read our final section for today starting at verse 18. You may have noticed I I skipped that when I was reading the other section. So we're going to read that and then we'll read the last section. It says, Then the, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Then jumping down to verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So for the first time in all of creation, something was not good. And you saw it right away, right? And many of us husbands and fathers, this is the point where a lot of times we read this and it says, you know, it is not good for man to be alone. And we're like, amen. I will tell you right now, at the point that we're at in my life, I clearly cry amen when I say it is not, when I read, it is not good for man to be alone. Like It has been very clear to me over the past few weeks how much I need a helper, right? But it, it, it's not just this idea of a helper, like someone to just take care of the things that I don't want to. See, it means more than that in this passage that God is talking about. Without woman, we are lacking as dominion keepers and image bearers. See, in the culture we live in, it is so easy for us to focus on the differences between man and woman that we often lose sight of what we share in common. There is far more that unites us than what separates us. The first thing that Adam says when he sees woman is, at last, one like me, same of my same. He is ecstatic. He is overjoyed. After, every, after having every animal paraded in front of him to find a suitable mate, he sees woman and he exclaims, At last, woman! 
Now, this is not a physical or sexual reference. He sees something in her that he hasn't seen in any other aspect of creation. He sees a fellow image bearer. We must view each other, men and women, we must view each other in this way as fellow image bearers. Although we have different strengths and different weaknesses, fundamentally we share more than what divides us. And there's this word in here. It says, when God says, I I will make a helper fit for him, that word, it can seem almost dirty in our culture, right? Like referring to woman as our helper. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't feel good. And, and honestly, the English almost makes it feel that way. It's translated not great to call it a helper. See, this is not just a sidekick, right? That's not what helper means here. This is not like Batman and Robin. Like Batman is awesome and he's billionaire playboy with all the amazing toys and cars and money and women and all this incredible stuff and can do everything. And oh yeah, I've got Robin dragged along by my side. He's my sidekick. Sometimes he gets me in a little bit more trouble than he actually helps me with. That's not what God is talking to, talking about when he says helper. The Hebrew word means necessary ally. See, the mission of God does not go forward without woman. We must look at each other with this view. When we look at each other, at last, someone to compliment me, someone that can come alongside me and fulfill God's glory with me, not just someone to take care of my children and fulfill me sexually, but someone that I cannot live without if I truly want to complete the mission of God in this world. We must view each other in this way. We need each other. Men and women, we need each other to fulfill this mission. Why is this so important to view ourselves this way? Well, as Jen Wilkins said, when when she was talking about this idea, Jen Wilkins is a, a very popular author and women's ministry leader. She was talking about this idea of why it's so important to view each other in this way. And she says, the reason it's important is the first step to treating someone with contempt is when you look at someone and say, not like me. Not like me. That's why I'm focusing so much on this idea of Imago Dei and our expectation for dominion and the importance of what it means to be a helper. Because If not, when we start to lose focus of the human beings around us being image bearers and helpers, that's when racism, sexism, ageism, xenophobia, and everything else starts to bleed out of our hearts. When we can look at the people next to us and say, not like me, they're different than me. That's when all of that bleeds out of our wicked hearts. We must view people as image bearers and helpers. Now, towards the beginning, I said that there were two important takeaways from the creation story. And one was the who. And we said, the who of creation is God. God created everything. Now, the second I've yet to clearly point out, although I have said it, I just haven't highlighted it specifically. And it's been throughout these passages I've been reading. The why of creation The second important takeaway from creation, the why, 
Why did God create everything? The answer is for his glory. Everything that he did is to reflect his incredible power and majesty. And even putting his image in all of us is so that we can reflect his glory to a broken world. That is the why of creation. Creation is here to reflect the glory of God. You are an image bearer to reflect the glory of God, to show those attributes of God to a broken and hurting world. We must understand that in order to help people know and obey Jesus. Now, as we read this story of a perfect garden and a people naked without shame and fear and sickness, it should cause us to long for what was. Those of us who know the rest of this story, we know what's coming in the next chapter. But next week, we're going to take a break from Genesis so that we can focus on the Easter story. But when we come back, we will dive back into chapter 3 and we will see how everything falls apart. But even this idea of Easter and this this week, this holy week that we are celebrating here, today we stand on Palm Sunday, all of these even bring out this topic of a longing for what was. Today is Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus walked into Jerusalem and everyone was laying down palm branches, praising him as king, Hosanna in the highest. Yet five days later, those same people were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. But we're reminded in Hebrews 4.15 that we have a high priest in Jesus who is not unable to sympathize with us. See, he understands. He knows the feeling of longing for what was and looking forward to what will be. There is hope. In the midst of all of this, there is hope. There is hope in redemption. There is hope in the cross. And there is a future eternity that is free from all of this pain, sickness, and unknown. The world we live in today is a result of chapter 3 that we will get to. All the death and sickness and wars and famine that we see every day is a result of the events we will discuss then. And it can be overwhelming to live in a world surrounded by all of this. But yet, I stand here and I say, we are image bearers and we're created to reflect his glory. And you may be sitting there with addiction, anxiety, feelings of self-worth. And you say, Joey, I don't feel like an image bearer. I don't feel like a masterpiece. I don't feel very glorifying to God. But when we read God's word that we are his masterpiece, that should cause us to fall to our knees and praise, run to his word and help it drown out the noise that the world around us is screaming at us that we're not worthy. We are worthy. Every one of you watching right now is an image bearer of God. And you have the ability to reflect his glory to a broken world. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the book of Genesis. I pray that as we dig into this, 
that it can help us to understand the foundations of our faith, help us to understand the beginnings of all of this. God, you are so good to us. God, I thank you that we can be image bearers of you. Help us to view the people that you have put in our life as fellow image bearers. Help us to look to the women in our lives as helpers, as necessary allies that we need in order to complete this mission. And God, help us to continue to reflect your glory to a broken world. In your name I pray. Jesus, amen.